Our Father, we thank You for this morning. We thank You for the privilege of worship. Even in a day when worship is different, we have an opportunity to sing with one voice Your praise, to declare to one another the glory of Your providence, the majesty of Your name, the sovereignty of Your rulership, and Your goodness and grace. Oh, our Father, even reading this psalm, we are overwhelmed by Your grace. And might the awareness of Your grace lead us to praise You when so many these days are questioning You And even when our own hearts might be disinclined to praise. So would you lead us this morning to hearts that are satisfied in you, that readily give praise to your name. We ask that you would accomplish this in us by this word. And according to the power of the Savior who resides within us. In His name we pray. Amen. Over the past couple of months, I have thought several times of a popular and catchy, yet ridiculous song that was released in the late 1980s. In every life we have some trouble, but when you worry, you make it double. Don't worry, be happy. Don't worry, Be happy now. And the song goes on with that same refrain repeated over and over. Don't worry, be happy. Don't worry, be happy. Not only is the song itself ridiculous in its tone, but friends, what it calls us to do is difficult, isn't it? It's it's difficult at any season to be happy when worrisome problems creep into our lives. It's difficult in any season when we have trouble and difficulty and pain and pressure to not worry and to give praise and to give thanks. And and the trouble with that song, of course, is, is that it just gives no reason why we shouldn't worry. It just says, don't worry and gives no power, gives no authority, gives no help to not worrying. Well, another writer has written another song that speaks to the same issue of temptations and circumstances to be distressed and to be despondent, and likewise calls us not to worry and to give praise and to be joyful and content and undergirds that with a firm basis of theology. I speak, of course, of the song that we know as Psalm 103. The heading tells us that it is written by David. We don't know with certainty whether it was written by him or not. That heading, again, is is not part of the biblical text. It was added later by an editor. It certainly could have been written by David. It certainly has Davidic tones, but... We don't know with absolute certainty whether or not he wrote it. But whether or not he wrote it, it has given us clear direction and clear insight as to how we ought to be thinking 
in times when we are tempted to despondency and despair. It's, it's not just a song for COVID-19. It's a, it's a song for any time that we might be despairing. It's a song for any time that we might be tempted to despondency. The struggle that when we are tempted not to praise God and when we are tempted to be discontent and when we are tempted to not be joyful is because we are often focused in those moments on wrong objectives. We want wrong things for wrong reasons and in wrong ways. And friends, in order to praise God, in order to be joyful, we need a new way to think our minds need to be renewed. And, and that is exactly what this song does for us. It renews our minds. It transforms our thinking. It transforms our thoughts so that we can move from ingratitude into godly gratitude for God. It moves us from despair and despondency to joy and genuine praise of God and who He is. Last week we noted that in this psalm the writer is addressing himself and he is compelling himself when he is tempted to despair to praise God. He is admonishing himself. He is preaching to himself. He is counseling himself. He is directing himself. He is, he is speaking to his inner man and directing his inner man to the praise of God. He understands that his problem is not his circumstances. His problem is how he is viewing the circumstances. His problem is in his mind and his heart and how he is perceiving and thinking about his circumstances. His problem is about how he is thinking about the God who is over the circumstances of his life. And this song corrects his thinking. And this song, likewise, corrects our thinking about God, about our circumstances, and how we might praise Him. We might summarize this song this way. When tempted with despondency, the believer always has reason to praise God. When tempted with with despondency, with despair, when we are tempted to lament, when we are tempted to grieve in ungodly ways, we always have reason to praise God. And in the second part of this hymn, in verses 6 through 22, we are exhorted with four more reasons to praise Yahweh. We are given four more reasons to exalt, praise, delight in, and being contented with the God who is sovereign over us. When tempted with despondency, the believer always has reason to praise God. The first of those reasons is given to us in verses 6 through 14, and it is, let your praise be stimulated by who God is. So our praise should not terminate on our circumstances, our delight should not be focused on our circumstance and our situation in life, but our praise should terminate on the person of God, the attributes of God, the character of God, on who God is. Now you will notice in verses 1 through 5, the psalmist is clearly addressing himself. He speaks in verse 1, Bless the Lord, O my soul. So he, he commands his own soul. Bless the Lord with all that is within me. Bless the Lord, verse 2, again, O my soul. And then, and then he commands his soul 
to think of God in particular ways in verses 3 through 5. So he's addressing his own inner man in these first five verses. Now in verse 6, he transitions and he moves from speaking personally to himself to speaking more broadly. And so he speaks about the character of God. Verse 6, the the Lord performs righteous deeds. Now he is not speaking as directly to himself as he's speaking more broadly about the nature of God. He's opening up the psalm in a sense to all of us. These are truths about God. These are realities about who he was, who he is, and who he always will be. They were true for David. They were true for the nation of Israel. They were true in the time of Jesus Christ. They were true of all God's people in all of life circumstances, everywhere, in every place. All of these realities are reasons for the psalmist and us to praise God. What does he say about who God is? Well, he tells us a number of truths about who God is, starting in verses 6 and 7 with the reality that God is and always is righteous. And friends, I I put that in the outline purposefully. I want us not just to think, well, yes, God is righteous. No, I want us to dwell on the fact that God is, God always is, in every circumstance, in every place, in every time. God always has been righteous God always is righteous, and God always will be righteous. Now, he tells us in verses 6 and 7 that he's righteous in two ways. Notice what he says, first of all. He says it very directly, doesn't he? The Lord performs righteous deeds. That is, everything that the Lord does, his deeds, his activities, his actions, all of those things... In all of those situations, God is always right. Everything he does is in accord with what is right. Everything that he does is holy and good. He can never do anything that is unholy. He can never do anything that is unrighteous. When the Lord performs, when the Lord acts, he always acts with righteousness. He can never do anything that is unrighteous. And then... He reinforces that with the second line in verse 6 and denoting that that he's connecting the two thoughts together and judgments for all who are oppressed. So he performs judgments for all who are oppressed. That is, he is just and he judges and he discerns and he acts with judgment in wisdom and holiness for all who are oppressed, for for all who are exploited by others, so others are coming in and bearing in on them and oppressing them and working against them. The psalmist here is telling us that God is their righteous defender. He is their holy defender. He is he is making righteous decrees about their circumstance. He's he's making righteous ju- judgments and decisions about those who are afflicted and those who are experiencing suffering from others. And then in verse 7, he reiterates that God's righteous when he says he has made known his ways to Moses. In other words, he has made known his righteous character, his righteous activities to Moses. The, the God, the God who is infinite, the God who is transcendent, the God who in some way is unknowable, 
has revealed himself to Moses. The one, the one who is above all and beyond all has, has through Moses revealed himself to Israel and then subsequently to us. And the one who is transcendent and unknowable has made himself known to Moses and to us. And he has made himself known as a God who is perfectly just and perfectly right. Let me just, and many places we could go to in the book of Moses that would tell us this, but let me just draw your attention to one passage, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4. As, as Moses sings a song as the nation has finished their time in the wilderness, they're about to go into the land of Canaan, about to, to take their, their land that is being promised to them by God. Notice what he says, In verses 3 and 4, Deuteronomy 32, I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. So so Moses says, I am declaring who God is, and and who is He? Verse 4, He is the rock, His work is perfect, for all His ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is He. Everything he does is perfect, Moses says. All his activities, all the directions, all the pathways that he walks are just and righteous. He is faithful in what he does. He cannot do anything that is unjust. He is righteous and upright. It's that kind of passage that the psalmist is thinking about when he says in verse 7 of Psalm 103, he has made known his ways to Moses and his acts to the sons of Israel. He's, he's revealed himself to Moses and to Israel as one who is righteous. Not just, though, is he righteous in general. I think the psalmist is also understanding that, that he is righteous in a particular way. That is, he is righteous in the giving of salvation in his acts of salvation to the nation of Israel. Consider what he says, for instance, in Psalm 67, starting in verse 1, and then particularly paying attention to verse 2. God, be gracious to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among the nations. And so the psalmist there reminds us that the way that God particularly acts is in bringing salvation to Israel and then through Israel to all of the other nations. And so when he says that he has made known his way to Moses, he's not just thinking, well, he's made known the fact that he's righteous, but he's made known the way that he produces righteous salvation for his people. Friends, all of this is simply to say, That what God does for men and what God does in men's lives is always righteous. It's always upright. It's never wrong. It's always in accord with what is true. The psalmist doesn't need to despair. Israel doesn't need to despair. And friends, we who sing this song after them, we also do not need to despair when suffering We do not need to think that something has gone beyond the control of God, beyond the sovereignty of God, that it has gone beyond the goodness of God, gone beyond the righteousness of God. The God has gone wrong. 
Friends, God cannot be unrighteous in whatever his actions in any day, including in these days, we are safe. In these months, I have thought often of what has become one of my favorite verses in Psalm 119. It's verse 68. The Lord is good and he does good. It is his nature to be good. He can be nothing but good. He can be nothing but righteous. And then everything that he does flows out of that. Everything that he does is a demonstration of his righteousness and his goodness. When circumstances are hard, my friend, when you are afflicted, when you are suffering, nothing has gone wrong. God has not become unfair. God has not become unjust. He is doing just as he desires. And it is right. And it is good. Let your praise be stimulated by who God is, my friend. Let your praise be stimulated by the fact that God is righteous. Also, let your praise be stimulated by the reality that God is and always is gracious. We see this in verses 8 and 9. God is always gracious. Now, you might have a category about God that says something like, uh, I know God does everything that is right, and I understand that, but God is not always kind in what He does. That sometimes the things that God does are, are mean and vindictive, and, and God is filled with anger, and He just really doesn't like us. And He, he does the right thing, but, but He really doesn't like us. And friends, these verses address that mindset. Here we find in verse 8 one of the most common statements about God in the Old Testament. This could be, this could be the theme song of God from the Old Testament. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. This, this phrase or a paraphrase of this phrase appears somewhere in the order of about 10 or 12 times in the Old Testament. And the first time that it appears, it appears in Exodus chapter 34. And Exodus chapter 34 occurs after Moses has gone up to Mount Sinai. And on Mount Sinai, he received the tablets of the law from God. And while he was up there communing with God for 40 days, the nation of Israel prevailed upon Aaron in despondency and despair and in lack of trust and uh, not hearing God and not seeing Moses during those days, they said, Moses is gone, God is gone, let's make a new calf or let's make a new idol to worship. And, and so they gathered a bunch of gold and they made a golden calf that they might worship that. And then Moses came down from the mountain and he saw what he had done and in anger he, he smashed the, the uh, ta- tablets of the law that were given to him. Now Exodus chapter 34 follows that. And the Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two stone tablets like the former ones, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets which you shattered. Verse 4, he cut out two stone tablets. Verse 5, the Lord descended in a cloud, and he stood there with him as he called on the name of the Lord. And then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord... The Lord God, 
compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Here is God revealing Himself again to Moses and to Israel after a most extraordinary sin. And He reveals Himself to Israel as one who is gracious. When we might have said, here is the time when we will see God's anger in all of His fullness, He said, let me show you the magnitude of my grace when you deserve wrath. It is that, it is that phrase that we see for the first time in Exodus chapter 34 when the nation of Israel most needed to hear the grace of God that we find now in Psalm 103. When the psalmist is tempted to despair, he is reminded of the grace of God, the kindness of God, the mercy of God. And notice how he explains who God is. He is the Lord, that is, He is Yahweh. He is the one who has made the covenants with the nation of Israel. And in making those covenants, He will be faithful to those covenants. He will not go back on those covenants. He will preserve those covenants. He will continue to maintain the grace that He intended for the nation of Israel to receive through those covenants. And who is this one Yahweh who makes these covenants? He is compassionate and gracious. Those two words, compassion and graciousness, are often used uh, together in the Old Testament. About 11 times, in fact, we find those two words paired together. They, they denote a reality that, um, that God loves like a mother who tenderly loves her children. He is benevolent. He is protective. He is merciful towards His people. He gives gifts and privilege that are undeserved. So there, there is something that is deserved and God does not give that and instead He gives something that is not deserved to His people. They deserve, in fact, His anger. But notice what He says about His anger. He says that He is slow to anger. More literally, the sense is that He has a long nose. Now, that sounds a little bit odd, but, but He simply means by that phrase that that his nose is is slow to flare in anger. His his nose is is slow to to develop anger and wrath. He he doesn't he doesn't quickly uh, turn into spiteful anger against his people. He is not reluctant to discipline his people, but friends, he is slow to discipline his people. He will wait a long time before carrying out justice and correction against sinners and against his people. We, we have seen this truth even in Romans uh, uh, some time ago. We saw this. But do you remember this from Romans chapter 2? Do you think lightly, verse 4, of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. God is slow. He is patient. He is kind in waiting to pour out wrath against sinners. Why? So that sinners have time to repent. Friends, this is, this is the benevolent grace and kindness of God. And notice what else 
the psalmist says, he is not only slow to anger, but he is abounding in loving kindness. That is, he has loyal love to his people. He is not miserly with his love to his people, but he is overflowing in how he loves his people. In fact, this this is a theme of this psalm. We we see this loving kindness in verse 4. He crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. We see it again in verse 11. So great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. And we will see it again in verse 17. The loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. He is lovingly kind. He's lovingly kind. He's lovingly kind. He's lovingly kind. Friend, he is loyal in his love to his people. The psalmist wants Israel to know that. He wants us to know that as well. The God will not go back on his promises to love his people. He is loyal and faithful to that promise. And as an outgrowth of that, see what other grace he gives to us. Notice verse 9, he will not always strive with us. That is, he will not eternally condemn and discipline the one who belongs to him. The word strive there in that phrase refers to a legal dispute. So, so when Yahweh has a legitimate uh, objection to someone, when, when Yahweh has a legal right to pour out his wrath against his people, he says that he won't carry it out always. He will not, for those who belong to him, carry it out eternally against them. Isn't it true? That we, in our fleshliness, are prone to bitterness, prone to anger, prone, dare I say it, even to use the word wrath. We tend to hold on to things, and we tend to hold on to things for a very long time. And friends, that is not the nature of God. That is not the character of God. He will not strive long with us. He, He will discipline when needed. He will... He will pour out His anger when needed. But friends, when we are in Him, it is not an eternal anger. It is not an eternal discipline. And He reiterates that in the last part of this line, or this uh, verse, nor will He keep His anger forever. His anger has a a limit against his, His people. He won't maintain His anger without the possibility of relief. Friends, his anger is always working in concert with his grace. There's always, there's always in his anger for the one who belongs to him an opportunity to experience his grace and the relief that his grace brings. As I was studying this psalm, I read a commentator who said this about this verse. Great as his wrath may be, His mercy is greater. Is that sentence true? Is it true that God's infinite grace is greater than His infinite wrath? Friends, if He has both grace in infinite measure and wrath in infinite measure, the grace cannot overwhelm or supersede, 
or be greater than his wrath. For that would mean that there is something deficient in his wrath, something inadequate in his wrath, something inadequate in his very being and nature and character. No. An infinite wrath needs an infinite grace for it to be satisfied. God's infinite wrath when poured out against finite sinners will never be satisfied. A finite sinner can never satisfy God's wrath and that is why there is an eternal hell for sinners will never be able to atone for themselves and fill up all of God's wrath. No, an infinite wrath needs an infinite grace to appease it. And friends, that is exactly what we have in Jesus Christ. For Jesus Christ applied His infinite righteousness to God's infinite wrath against our infinite sin. And that infinite righteousness, given in infinite grace, appeases Infinite wrath. So you know a better way to say what that commentator said is that not that God's grace is greater than His wrath, but God's grace is greater than our sin. And oh friends, that is our hope, isn't it? That whatever sin we bring to the table, whatever sin we bring to the throne of God, whatever sin we are accountable to God for, when we are in Christ, when He has satisfied God's wrath, that wrath is permanently appeased. And because of that, He can say in verse 10, He will not keep His anger forever. Oh, friend, because of Jesus Christ, if you are in Him, or if you were in Old Testament Israel, and you were looking forward to the coming of the Messiah and the fulfillment of the law, God is not angry with you, and God cannot be angry with you. Whatever circumstances you have received from God, whatever your life situation, whatever... Whatever your problem, whatever your temptation to despair, oh friend, do not think that it is because of God's anger with you. It is, it is in fact a manifestation of His grace because God is and always is gracious. There's another reality that's given to us in verses 10 to 13. And it is that God is and always is forgiving. God is and always is forgiving. The the psalmist reveals the reality about God's forgiveness in, in multiple ways in verses 10 through 13. Notice verse 10. He tells us that God doesn't give His people what their sin deserves. So we see His forgiveness in the fact that that our sin doesn't get us what we deserve. Both lines in verse 10 reiterate the the reality that God has not acted against sin according to what the sin of Israel deserved. So, So he says he has not dealt with us according to our sins. In other words, the sin of Israel should have gotten something, 
And God didn't act in that way against the sin. And then he repeats that idea and he says, nor has he rewarded us according to our iniquities. Now, now just think very simply, what is it that our iniquity, what is it that our sin should reward us with? Well, you, you know the verse in Romans, don't you? Romans chapter 6, right? Verse 23, the wages of sin is death. The, 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 the reward of our sin is death. And the psalmist tells us that's not what God has given us. That was true for believing Israel, and that is true of us as well. God demonstrates His grace, His forgiveness to us in that He doesn't give us what our sin deserves. Verse 11, God demonstrates His forgiveness in that He has a limitless love for His children. He is, verse 11, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. If you could measure the heights of the heavens as they extend out and above and beyond the earth, then you would be able to measure God's love. And friend, we can't measure that. And he says, that is the sense of God's love for us. It is measureless. It is limitless. When you go to the ends of the heavens, God's love extends even beyond them. This phrase might even serve as the basis for the children's book that we used to read to our children. Our love, the book says, our love is always with us and it never ever ends, the parent says to the child. So snuggle safely in my arms I love you to the moon and stars, my precious little one. And friends, if our human love can be said to go to the stars, how much greater the infinite love of God. There is no end to his love. But notice, notice as well, verse 11 tells us that that love is only for those who fear him, only for those who worship him rightly, only those who are in fellowship with him. This verse reaffirms Romans 8.28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. So God works everything to good to those who love him. That, That word love is akin to what he's talking about here. Those who fear him, those who are in right relationship with him, those who are in fellowship with him, only those can be assured of God's love for them. And friend, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, might I just urge you and compel you that all of the goodness of God, all of the grace of God, all of the forgiveness of God, it is not yours yet until you learn to fear Him, love Him, obey Him, trust Him. And simply, friend, this morning, you you need to acknowledge that You are a sinner who deserves God's wrath. But God sent Christ to absorb the wrath of God against your sin, to pay the penalty for your sin. And that when you believe that Christ atoned for that sin, paid the penalty for that sin, that Christ lived a righteous life in satisfaction for the demands that God gave in the law, when you believe that Christ is adequate to pay for your sin 
And when you believe that Christ is worth following in faith and worth living for, then God will save you from your sin. God will redeem you. God will give you eternal life and this forgiveness that we're talking about. Friend, if you're not a believer yet, will you trust Him? And will you believe in Him as your Savior from your sin? God reminds us as well of how He forgives us, verse 12, not only that He has limitless love for His people, not only that He doesn't give His people what their sin deserves, but verse 12, God infinitely takes sin away from His people. Isn't this one of the great verses of the Old Testament? As far as the east is from the west, so far He has removed His transgressions from us. He has He has taken our sin away from us an infinite distance. Now we might... We might focus on the infinite distance, and that is certainly worth focusing on. But might I just draw your attention to the fact that He has removed your sin. He's taken it away. He's taken away the penalty of that sin. He's taken away the wrath of that sin. He's taken away the power of that sin. For the one who believes in Christ, the one who is a follower of God in the Old Testament the one who was looking forward to the Messiah, that sin was removed from them. That penalty was no longer on their heads. And for those of us who are in Christ, the power of sin is also removed so that we can please God and be obedient to Him. God takes away the penalty. God takes away the sin from His people. Further, God, verse 13, has compassion in forgiveness towards his people. Isn't it interesting? We often think when we think about compassion, we often think about a mother being compassionate towards her children. But notice verse 13, just as a father has compassion on his children. So so the same kind of love that a father would grant to his children, the, the same kind of tenderness that a father grants to his children, except exponentially more, he says, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. The sense is that God pities and has always pitied and had compassion and tenderness towards those who belong to Him. Friends, all four of these verses are a reminder for us that we always have room to praise God because we are a forgiven people. Our sin isn't being held against us. We have been liberated from that sin, freed from that sin. Let your praise be stimulated by who God is because He is always righteous, always gracious, always forgiving. Verse 14, always mindful. Of all the verses in this psalm, this is the one where I have wept the most as I have read this psalm. This is the one that has brought me to humble tears and gratitude most often these weeks. It is easy to think about God as being one who is uncompassionate, unkind, ungracious, overbearing, and harsh. And verse 14 speaks directly to that. He himself knows our frame. That is, he, and the pronoun is emphatic, he is well aware of how we were made. 
He knows how we are put together. He knows how we are put together because He's the designer of our bodies. He's the designer of our minds. And not only is He the designer, He's also the manufacturer. He he not only has read of how we are put together, He was there. He remembers it. And He doesn't just remember it as one who observes. He remembers as one who made us exactly this way. And He designed us in exactly this way. And friends, He has not forgotten that. He has not forgotten that He has made us finite and with limits and then said later, Oh, I am going to demand something of them that is of infinite worth and infinite value that they cannot attain. That is not the way He operates. He is, notice the end of verse 14, He is mindful. He is mindful. He is thinking on the reality that we're just dust. He knows that we are not made of eternal and infinite material. He knows that we are weak. He knows that that the scope of what we can do is limited. He does not demand of us something that we cannot do. He will not overwhelm us. But everything that He sends us is within the scope of His provision and His care for us. Oh, friends, God is dealing with us according to our finite position because of and through His awareness of our weakness and our frailty. Oh, friends, He's not forgotten. And everything He's bringing into your life is in full awareness of just how fragile we are. Oh, let us be moved to worship by these realities of God's nature. He's righteous, gracious, forgiving, and mindful. Let your praise, secondly, be stimulated by who man is. Notice verses 15 and 16. Let your praise be stimulated by who man is. In contrast to all that God is, there's a reality about who we are. When he says, verse 15, as for man, he is shifting his argument. Now he's providing a contrast. God is this way, and man is this way. Now let's consider, in contrast to God, who man is and what man is and the limitations of man. And notice what he says, His days are like grass. Man is temporal. People grow up and they flourish and they fade away and they die off quickly. Just two or three weeks ago, Regina and I were walking around our yard and saying, Oh, doesn't the grass look great? And look at these flowers and don't they look great and aren't they fabulous? And then and then we stopped getting rain and the temperature started rising very quickly. And now we're walking around the yard and going, Well, look at those flowers dying off and look at that grass dying off and look at those brown spots in our yard and, and looking at look at how quickly it is fading away. Friend, that is mankind. That is our life. As quickly as the wind blows, verse 16, as the wind has passed over it, it is no more. The wind blows, and it's gone. 
It goes away. It, it, it's akin to what James says in chapter 4, verse 14. Our life is like a disappearing vapor, and, and we long to hold on to that vapor, and, and we can't grasp it. It just it disappears and it goes away. This is why we read Psalm 90 earlier. Our days, verse 9, have declined in your fury. We've finished our years like a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or, or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away. It's here and gone. This weekend, Regine and I celebrate our 33rd anniversary, and we were, we were just talking the other night. It, it just seems like, it just seems like a few weeks ago, maybe a few months ago, that we stood before a preacher and said, I do. And 33 years and it's gone. Life's a vapor. And it disappears. And then notice verse 16, the end, and its place acknowledges it no longer. So the idea is that there is a place for every person. There's a place in time, a place in history, a location where God has designed a person to be. And then the person is gone and the place where he was forgets him so we think our legacy is permanent. We think, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll amass a fortune and I'll put my name on a building and no one will forget me. I'll, I'll build a stadium and put my name on it. I'll, I'll, I'll achieve some position in culture or politics or society and no one will forget my name. Friends, it's here and it's gone and our lives are forgotten. I finished reading recently a book entitled Destiny of the Republic. It is the story of the assassination of President James Garfield in the late 19th century. And as I listen to that book, that is the very conclusion that the author comes to as she, as she finishes wrapping up the shortest, the shortest presidency of any president in U.S. history. She writes this, Even as they mourned the death of their president, Americans understood that as time passed, Garfield would begin to fade from memory. Quote, his ultimate place in history will be far less exalted than that which he now holds in popular estimation, the New York Times warned its readers. She continues, more painful even than the realization that his brief presidency would be forgotten. Was, that the, was the thought that future generations would never know the man that he had been. And they don't. He has been forgotten. His place is blown away and gone. And friends, this is the nature of man. And that should stimulate us to praise God and not praise things that we can find in this world and hold on to them and yearn for them and long for them as if they are eternal. Well, friends, this is a reminder that everything around us is temporal and the object of our praise should be the one and only who is eternal, and that is God in heaven. 
Let your praise be stimulated by who man is. Thirdly, let your praise be stimulated by what God does. Not only who God is, we saw that in verses 6 through 14, but what God does, verses 17 through 19. And what we find in verses 17 through 18 is that he is loyal to his people. We find repeated themes here. The loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. This is the fourth time that he speaks about the loyal love of God. It is an eternal love that he has from before time began to after time will end. And it is on those who fear him. Those who fear him reflecting that they love him. By what they do, they keep his covenants and they remember his precepts in order to do the things that he commands them to do. He's not saying that they can fulfill the law and by fulfilling the law they get they get salvation. But he is simply saying that out of their fear of God, out of their trust of God and the coming provision of the Messiah who will be their righteousness... Out of that trust, they obey and they keep the law. It demonstrates that they belong to him. And those who belong to him, he says he has a loyal love for them. We are reminded in these two verses that we are weak and frail and fading, but God is strong and omnipotent and constant. He who is unfading will always keep and preserve his people. When they are suffering, they're tempted to despair. They're tempted to mistrust. They're tempted to place their trust in something else. They're tempted to question his goodness. But he is keeping them. He is loyal to them. He must keep them. He not only does keep them, but he must keep them. So he is loyal to his people. Verse 19 What else God does is that he rules wisely from heaven. Notice verse 19. He has established his throne in the heavens. Yahweh in the heavens has established his throne. He he who is in heaven, he who is above all things and beyond all things and, and transcendent beyond all things in heaven, he rules all things. And In his sovereignty, he rules over all. That is, his kingdom rules over all circumstances. There are no limits to his sovereignty. There is nothing that is beyond the limits of his rulership. And friends, isn't that in direct contrast to what man is? God is sovereign over everything. And friends, we are sovereign over nothing. We are... We are not sovereign even over a small bug. I mean, we think, well, there's an ant and I can kill the ant. Yes, but but there's even something smaller than an ant called COVID-19 and we can't kill it. We are not sovereign over it. And God is sovereign over all things. Everything is under the domain of his Kingdom. There are no renegade nations. There are no renegade people. There are no renegade weather storms or weather systems. There are no renegade molecules. There is nothing that, that scooches out beyond God's sovereign control. He is sovereign over all things. He is sovereign over all people. And in His sovereignty... He is infinitely wise in caring for us. All that he does 
in wisdom, in goodness is for us. It may feel severe at times, but friends, it is flowing from heaven where no unrighteousness can abide. It is flowing from the character of God who cannot do anything unkind, ungracious, ungodly. Everything he does is in accord with who he is. He is ruling wisely from heaven. And friend, that means that you can trust his action. Not only can you trust his action, that also means that our praise must be part of a universal chorus of praise. Oh, friend, let your praise be part of a universal chorus of praise. Notice how the psalmist ends, verses 20 and 21. All creation and all created beings praise Yahweh. At the beginning of this psalm, the psalmist began with a threefold call of praise to himself. Three times he calls himself to praise. And now at the end of this psalm, three times he calls the rest of creation to praise God. Bless the Lord, you his angels. And so here he calls the angels to praise the Lord. The angels who are in heaven with God, the angels he describes as having strength. They're mighty in strength. So they have power and authority in their own right as given to them by God. They are those who are in service to God. They perform His Word. When He tells them to do something, they do that. And they obey the voice of His Word. They are unique in their obedience to God. David or the psalmist says to them, You must praise the Lord. And then and then verse 21, Praise the Lord or bless the Lord, all you His hosts. There's, there's a question here. Is He talking about other angelic beings, or is he talking about the hosts of heaven, that is the stars and all the planetary beings, the created part of God that is that is beyond our scope in the heavens? And and the word is used, hosts is used both of angels and created stars and the heavens. Could be used in either either way. I, I think I'm not going to be dogmatic about this. I think he's talking about other angelic beings, perhaps greater angelic beings, perhaps the supreme or the archangels, the, the highest among the angelic beings, because he says at the end of the verse, you who serve him in doing his will. In other words, these beings that he's calling to praise the Lord are those who, who do the will of God. And then notice verse 22, bless the Lord all you works of his, not just the angelic beings, but everything that is created by God. You bless God. You you praise God. You affirm the reality of God. And and friends, isn't it true that even even creation declares the glory of God? We see that in in Psalm 148. Don't we praise the Lord? Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels, all His hosts. Verse three: Praise Him, sun and moon, all stars of light. Praise Him, highest heavens and the waters that are above the heavens. Let them praise the nor- play, praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were created. So, all creation, in some sense, is is declaring to the world. The majesty of God, the glory of God, the wonder of God. And that leads him to his ultimate point. That we corporately and individually also praise Yahweh. Notice verse 22. Bless the Lord all you works of his and all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. 
And here he ends where he began. He began by admonishing himself, by speaking to himself, to directing his soul. And he finishes now in the very same place, directing his soul. Praise the Lord. And finishing this way, he is reminding himself that he is not singing a solo. This is not a solitary song. This is not just the psalmist alone singing to God. This is the psalmist in conjunction with all of God's creation, with all of, all of the hosts of heaven, with all those who belong to God also singing praise to Him. Friend, when you praise God, you're not alone. You are singing a song that is in accord with all of God's creation and with all those who belong to Him. Oh, friend, let us praise Him. Steve Lawson asks this question, Do you ever have trouble praising God? Do you ever not feel like extolling His name? Do you ever get so discouraged that you have lost your joy? Do you ever find it hard to praise God? Do you ever get so low that you don't ever want to go to church? Do you ever get so downcast that you cannot even sing the hymns and choruses? Maybe that is where you find yourself. Yet the more we know of God, the more we will praise Him. To know Him is to love Him. The key to having a constant devotion to God is to always be growing in the knowledge of God. Oh, friends, this day, Sunday, May 17, 2020, in the middle of COVID-19, in the mid of some other circumstance that is weighing heavily on you, let us praise God. Let us bless His holy name, for He is worthy of our praise today in everything. Can I paraphrase that silly song that I alluded to at the beginning of this message? Don't worry. Be happy in God and in His abundant spiritual provision for you and you will never be disappointed. That doesn't rhyme, I know. But it is a truth that will be a bedrock for your soul that will help you to praise when your circumstances are tempting you to despondency. Our Father, we thank you for the encouragement of this psalm, how rich its truths are. Might these realities about who God is, who you are, and what you do, and who we are, and what we were created to do, might they drive us to contented praise in you. Today, until the end of COVID-19, beyond COVID-19, all our days and into eternity, Father, might we corporately and we individually be known as those who bless the Lord from our soul. We pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.